Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been around Wildwood this, uh, this, this year, um, this summer, you know that we are in the midst of a series based out of the book of First Peter, a series that we've entitled True Grace. And the book of First Peter, I really believe that God has given it to us so that we would understand how we can survive and even thrive in hostile territory. The world in which we live is, is antagonistic towards the gospel and has a, a current that is moving away from God's truth. And yet God desires for us to be his witnesses in this world. He desires for us to, to walk with him in this world. He desires to use us in this world. And the book of 1 Peter is a book that God has given to us to encourage us for how we can stand in this hostile territory. And we stand not in our own strength, but we stand in his. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12 describes it this way. Peter describes his whole teaching in this book. He says, this is the true grace of God that you would stand firm in it. God is giving us his grace, enabling us to stand in this world. And we've been looking at that all summer long. I want to be just issue a word of thanks to, to Pastor John Abernathy who brought the word to us last week from the beginning parts of 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at, at the latter parts of 1 Peter chapter 3 today. But before we do that, I want to just share with you guys a little bit of a story. Uh, this last week, my family had the opportunity to go to a family camp in Colorado. Uh, it was a great time. It was a lot cooler than it is here. Uh, we had a great time there. And one of the things we did at this family camp was uh, they divided people up into teams, and there were a number of different competitions between families. And one of the competitions that we had between families was a, a, an event called Dizzy Bat. Is anybody familiar with this event? Maybe you don't know it by its name, but maybe you understand it by, by what it is. You line up as a relay race, and each member of your team will run down to this end. They'll grab a bat, they'll put it on their forehead, and you run around it really fast ten times. And then you have to run back to the beginning of the line, and the next person goes. For some reason, they thought I would be good at this event. Or better yet, they wanted to make fun of me as I did this event. And so somehow I was in the Dizzy Bat competition. Now, right before I compete in Dizzy Bat, one of the other members of our team gives me kind of a life hack, kind of a, a word of advice, a word of wisdom. And what he said was, as you spin around, when you stop, rather than immediately start running back, Take a moment and, and turn the other direction, just kind of recalibrate your system, and then you'll be able to make it in the other direction. Um, now, I was willing to take any advice at this moment, so I took his word, and you know what? It actually almost kind of worked. I mean, the rodeo clown that kind of helped, helped hold me up a little bit, but I, you know, in, in a dizzying environment, you'll take any advice that you can get, and I was thankful for my friend's advice. And I was thinking about that this week because we live in a world that is dizzying right now, isn't it? We live in a world that is dizzying. It's disorienting. We live in a world that, that is spinning very quickly in directions we're not used to. When you get on social media, whether it be Twitter or Facebook, we're, we're confronted many times with, with, with messages that remind us that the world is at odds with, with God's truth. And we, we read articles that talk about how the church in North America, which has experienced a place of privilege for a long time, might be on the verge of entering into a season of persecution, that our faith in Christ would be so at odds with the world around us that we might begin to suffer for our faith. And it begins 
These articles would tell us through things being taken away like tax exemption or, or, or things in our public places and courtrooms, and, and it's just kind of dizzying as we live in this environment. It's dizzying as we live in this world. And as we live in this world and as it's spinning very quickly around us, how are we to respond? What are we to do? How are we to act? Wouldn't it be great if there was someone who could speak to us in that moment and and tell us where to go and what to do? Well, I'm so thankful to God because the book of 1 Peter is is just such a book that God has given to us to, to speak to us and tell us what to do and how to recalibrate as the world is spinning around us at increasingly rapid rates. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. And, and as we look at those verses together, we're going to see a couple of things, a couple of pieces of advice, a couple of things we're to do as we live our lives in a world that is spinning at increasingly fast speeds. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we're going to back up and, and go through them together and see a couple of things for us today. First, let's read these verses. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Peter writes and says, Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now in 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 22, we see a couple of things that God would have us to do in a world that is spinning rapidly around us. The first thing we see is that we are to pursue good. We are to pursue good. We see that in verses 8 to 17. Now, what's interesting about verses 8 to 17 is it really, it's a little bit of a, of a sermon that Peter is going to preach tied to an Old Testament passage. We're used to this, right? When we show up at church here on Sundays, we'll read a section of God's Word, and then we'll draw some applications from it. 
In a very similar way, Peter takes an Old Testament section of Scripture from Psalm 34, uh, verses 12 to 16, and then he draws various applications from it. That's what we see in, in verses 8 to 17, with kind of a title of that sermon that Peter preaches, that God's people are to pursue good as they live out their lives in this hostile environment. Uh, look, look at what it says in verses 10 to 12. He quotes Psalm 34. He reads the verse for us. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and let him pursue it. Psalm 34, one of the applications that, that Peter's going to draw for us is that Christians are to live out our lives pursuing good. We're to do good as we live out our lives in this world around us. Now, this section of Scripture kind of follows all of these different sets of relationships that a believer has. He, he talked about, we saw back in chapter 2, that believers are to live out our lives in relationship to government. We're to live out our lives in relationship to our employers. Chapter 3, John showed us last week, we're to live out our lives in relationship to our spouse. And as we do all of those, and at times all of those relationships might be difficult, they might be hostile at times towards the truth of Jesus Christ, Peter reminds us through Psalm 34 that we are to pursue good as we live out our lives in those relationships. And pursuing good in those relationships will involve us having a set of attitudes that Peter applies in verse 8. He says if we're to pursue good, then we need to have five different things going on inside of us. The first is that we are to have a, a unity of mind. What does that mean, a unity of mind? It doesn't mean that everybody agrees about everything. It doesn't mean that everybody does everything the same way, but it means that among those inside the church, there ought to be a harmony. You know, on the stage earlier, as, as the band was leading us in worship, the drums were doing one thing, and the guitar was doing another, and the piano was doing another, and the voices were doing something else, but all together they combined to make a, a beautiful sound, a, a harmony. In the same way, the church is not just to be in, 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 in doing everything exactly the same, but God has given us different perspectives, different gifts, but as we, we look at it, we'd make a melody that has a unity, has a harmony, a unity of mind that points to the tune of Jesus Christ. As we live out our lives, we're to have a unity of mind. We're also to have a sympathy. We're to have our hearts moved to compassion for others. We're to weep with those who weep. We're to care for them. We're also to have a brotherly love, it says, a, a deep concern, a willingness to sacrifice for others the way Jesus has for us. We're to have a tender heart. We're not to be calloused. We're to have a tender heart towards one another. And we are to have a humble mind, not to seek merely our own advantage or our own way, but willing to lay those things down for others. You see, Peter writes, and he, he wants everyone to know, as we live out our lives in this hostile territory, we are to pursue good. And these kinds of attitudes ought to be at the core of us. And the, the question that I have for us today is, do these five things characterize you? As you relate to your family, as you relate to your place of employment, as you relate to your friends, as you relate to, to others in our society, do these things mark you? Are you someone who pursue, pursues unity and, and peace and love? Are you someone that has sympathy and compassion, who's tender-hearted, who cares for those around you? See, our world may be hostile, but Christians aren't to be hard. We're to be people who care about those around us. 
we're to pursue good. You know, as I read through these things, there are some that I feel like, well, I, that, that's kind of me sometimes. There's others that were a great challenge to me. They might be different for you than for me, but this is a pretty challenging set of attitudes. How does somebody come to those set of attitudes? What happens not just by us being better people, it happens by Christ working through us to transform not only our minds but our hearts. Jesus exhibited these things, therefore his followers have the opportunity to exhibit them as well. The idea is that Christians would be a, a blessing that they would pursue, as they pursue good in all of those relationships. Who doesn't want to be married to somebody who lives out verse 8? Who doesn't want to have somebody who lives out verse 8 be a citizen in their country? Who doesn't want somebody uh, to work for them who exhibits verse 8? See, the idea is that as we live out our lives, we live out our lives pursuing good. But as we do so, as we pursue this good, there are a number of things that we need to be careful to, to do or not do. And Peter gives us those warnings in this passage. The first one he says is he says, as you pursue good, don't lash out. Don't lash out. Verse 9, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now that's a pretty difficult one for us to do, right? We're wired in such a way that on a human level that we respond to insult with insult. Somebody comes up and, and insults you, what do you want to do? You want to fire right back at them. Somebody comes up to you and they want to be argumentative, what do you want to do? You want to be argumentative right back to them. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. When your kids come to you and they're argumentative or they come to you and they're insulting, how do you want to respond back to them? That, that's what we do on a human level. But here's the thing, that, that's not what is on the divine level. The life following Christ, the, the godly life that God desires from us, is not one that returns evil for evil or insult for insult, but it's one that responds to an insult or evil with a blessing. That's what God is, is calling us to do. And that's, that's a challenge for us because we want to lash out. When somebody comes and they, they speak down about Christianity, or they, they, they call you a, a bigot because of your, your faith in Christ and, and what that means about your understanding of certain passages of Scripture in our world today as it relates to sexuality. And those are hard things to hear. Those are hard things to process. And many times when we hear those things, we want to fire right back with another insult. We want to come back with a zinger. We want to win the argument. We want to have the definitive Facebook post to end all Facebook posts. We want to have the Twitter mic drop walk off. That's what we want. Because that's the human plane. That's how we're wired. But as believers in Christ, people who follow God, we, we're called to something higher, not on a human level, but on a divine level. That as people lash out at us, that we wouldn't lash out in return. As people insult us, we wouldn't insult in return. Instead, we would love them. And Jesus is our model. As he was on trial before Pilate, as he was on trial before Herod, he could have won the argument, but he didn't. Instead, he responded by giving his life as a blessing. See, one of the things we need to be careful of as we live out our lives in this hostile territory is we need to pursue good, but one of the ways we do that is by not lashing out in response. Second thing we see here, though, is not just lashing out, but we, we shouldn't cave in. This is the other side of that argument. It's one thing to not lash out, but are we supposed to just waffle on everything and make everybody happy around us? No. Peter 
writes and encourages the church to, to not cave in on biblical truth. We see this really in, in verses 12 and following. He quotes Psalm 34 there, and he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then he draws this conclusion in 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Here's what I think Peter was saying. He was saying, don't cave in. There's a tremendous pressure in our world uh, to cave in on truth. Out of a fear of our world, out of a fear of our neighbors, out of our fear of our family or those around us on this earth, we fear them and so we cave on biblical truth. Peter writes and says, don't do that. Instead, remember that God is the one who ultimately will be our judge. God is the one who will reward the righteous and who will punish the wrongdoer. Therefore, fear him and not them. We need to remember that because in our life there's this pressure for us to cave on biblical truth because in the world around us we just want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And yet, the follower of Christ is not to cave in on truth. We're to fear God and not men. We're to stand with him. I don't know what the areas are for you. They're different in different circles. As you live out your lives in your, in your family, as you live out your lives in your workplace, as you live out your lives in this society, what are the areas where Scripture is at odds with the predominant worldview around you, where you're tempted to cave in? Peter says, don't. Let Jesus still be who you follow. Don't cave in. Don't lash out. Don't cave in. Pursue good. But uh, another application that he has as he concludes this little message is that we are to point up. We're to point up. Verses 15 to 17 tell us this. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, what does that mean? The word holy also can mean set apart. I think what he's saying is, have Jesus set apart in your heart as your Lord. Set him, set him apart, set him up. We're going to follow him. We're going to revere him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. Jesus is at the center of who we are. We're going to take our marching orders from him. Set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, this is a very famous verse in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.15, one of the most famous verses in here, because it encourages us to have a defense for why we believe what we believe. As a matter of fact, the, the word from which we get the, the, the term apologetics is a, is a defense. It's the reason that is spoken of here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Um, and, and you know what? I think it's very important for us to, to understand our faith and be able to articulate it and defend it. You know, Wildwood has these classes called uh, the, the Bible Institute, TBI, on Wednesday nights. And those classes are designed to equip us to be able to give a defense of our faith, to be able to articulate it in different ways. We had a class on apologetics last spring, a class on how to share your faith with, with confidence this summer. This fall, I'm going to be helping to lead a class with a number of other men uh, here at Wildwood on, on articulating a biblical worldview on things like science and on medicine, 
Um, and I've invited other people to cover those things because they're smarter than I am in those areas. Um, but we're, we're going to be looking at that. I think it's important. It's a, it's a, it's a relevant application from 1 Peter 3.15 to have a defense to articulate our faith. But here's the thing. I think we need to be careful to really understand what 1 Peter 3.15 is, is actually telling us. 1 Peter 3.15 is not encouraging us merely to be smarter. As a matter of fact, um, the, the defense that is argued here is not so much mental, it's not so much um, theological on this, this really complicated level, but it's more ethical, it's more life-based. Here's the picture. That in our hearts, we're to set Christ as Lord, we're to follow Him. And when we follow Christ, we're not going to lash out, we're not going to cave in, we're going to live our lives following Him. And, and when people look at us and they see us, they're going to go, that's a little weird. How is it that when you are insulted, you don't fire back a response of insult? How is it that, that when you are persecuted because of your faith, that you don't give it up or you don't hedge a bet, that you don't cave in? How is it that you, you have hope in the midst of a life that looks like you're getting kicked in the stomach all the time? How is it that you can have that kind of a hope? And, and really, what's the answer to that? Is it, is it what happened to the dinosaurs? Is it, is it all these complicated issues of apologetics that we think about and they're important for us to think about? But I don't think that's really the heart of what 3.15 is talking about. I think 1 Peter 3.15 says that when you are experiencing this kind of of, of opposition, and you are enduring following Christ, when people ask you, what is the reason for your hope, what's the answer? You point up. You point up. You say, it's, it's Jesus. He's the reason for my hope. How can I have hope in the midst of, of persecution? Because Jesus came down, and was he persecuted? Absolutely. But what happened to him? He raised from the dead, and guess what? He's inviting me to come with him. How can we have hope in the midst of a life that is hard? We have hope in the midst of a life that is hard because of Jesus. And that's what we need to remember, and that's, that's the reason for our hope, and that's what we need to articulate when others ask. See, we make this first way harder than we need to. We make it seem like we've got to have a Ph.D. before we can have a conversation. When in reality, anybody who knows Christ knows the reason for our hope. The reason for our hope is Jesus. When we're challenged, we point up to him, and we do so in a way that is loving and pursuing good in others, having a mindset like we saw in verse 8. That's with gentleness and respect. We articulate the reason for our hope, which is Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our argument. Our hope is not in having every question answered. Our hope is in him. As we live out our lives in a, in a hostile environment, we need to constantly be pointing up to our Savior. See, we are to pursue good, not lashing out, not caving in, but pointing up. Now, when we point up, what are we saying? When we state the reason for our hope, what is that reason? Well, it's found in the gospel, and that's really the second thing that we're called to do in this passage, is we're called to not just pursue good, but we're called to proclaim the gospel. And we see that beginning in, in verse 18 of this passage. You know, I'm, I'm, I so love the book of 1 Peter, and one of the reasons why I love it is that Peter can't write a paragraph without talking about Jesus. He can't go anywhere without articulating the gospel, the reason for his hope. He does it over and over and over again. 
He points back to Jesus and who he was and what he did for us on the cross. Verse 18 says it this way. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now I want you to think for a moment. Peter was someone who knew Jesus. He was someone who was around Jesus a lot. And because of that, he knew that Jesus was really quite popular. Now Jesus would eventually be crucified, um, which doesn't seem like he was that popular. But look back at the rest of the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus went, uh, there was a crowd. And why were those crowds gathering? The crowds were gathering around Jesus because they had questions about God. And guess what? Jesus could answer them with authority. He could stand up on the mount and speak a sermon that articulated truth that nobody had ever heard anybody teach that way before. Jesus was somebody who taught truth. They, they, they followed Jesus. They gathered around him because he was, he was somebody that not only taught truth, but he was somebody who healed the sick. People would come sick. They'd bring their children, their, their friends. They would bring them to Jesus, and Jesus would have compassion on them, and he would, he would pray over them, and they would be healed of their illness and their infirmity. Jesus was, was amazing. People flocked to him. When they were hungry, uh, they would come to Jesus because he gave them something to eat on two different occasions, feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. Uh, this is the Jesus that we, we see in Scripture. It was the Jesus that Peter knew. Jesus was someone that when, when you were afraid, you could go to him and he would calm the waters and he would remind you of his presence with you and he would encourage them. See, Jesus was somebody that, 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 was, that, was, that was popular. He was somebody that people flocked to. He was, he was attractional in that way. And you know what? All of that was before he ever died on the cross for their sins. But when people put all the pieces together, the same guy who did all these amazing things was also the same guy that loved me enough to die for my sins. Jesus went from good to great. He went from somebody I want to be around to somebody I want to worship. He went from, from somebody who was an interesting historical figure to the Son of God incarnate in flesh that could provide for us salvation. And what Peter tells us in, in chapter 3, verse 18, is that we have this incredible message that we get to proclaim. And that is that the same Jesus who lived on this earth and, and was, was wonderful in his presentation to people and his love for people and, and everything that he did and the perfect life that he lived, that not only did he do those things, but he also gave up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Not only did Jesus care for us while he was here, but he also said, you know what, the perfect life that I've lived, I'm willing to give that to you so that when God looks at you, he would see the perfection of Jesus. And Jesus said, in return, you, I'll give you my righteousness, and in turn, I'm going to take back from you everything you've ever done that warrants the wrath of God. Every sin you've ever committed, every, every mistake that you've ever made, Jesus said, give that back to me. I'll, I'll put it on, and I'll go to the cross, and I'll soak up all of the wrath of God concerning those things. And instead, I will give to you my righteousness. What an amazing message we have to proclaim. Not only that Jesus was awesome, not only that he was great, but also that he died for us. And not only did he die for us, but, but he, three days later he rose from the grave to put a big exclamation point at the end to let us know without question that he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God and we can be forgiven because of him. See, that's the gospel that we get to proclaim. And you know what? Before we go any further and before we look at any of the rest of this, I want to just encourage you, if you are here today, and Jesus has always been an interesting person in history to you, 
He's always been someone who, who has some interesting sermons to teach, or he was somebody that did some, some, some neat things for people way back 2,000 years ago. If, if that's your understanding, if that's your view of Jesus, you need to know that he is way more than that. He is someone that is willing to take from you your unrighteousness and give to you your, his righteousness so that you might be forgiven and that you might be with God forever, that he would be a bridge that would usher you into his presence. And you know what, that, that kind of a relationship that can endure and can save you can begin in just a moment, right where you sit, by merely confessing your faith to him and saying, I'm trusting in you for my eternity. If you're here today and you have never placed your faith and your trust in Christ, let today be the day that you do, that you trust in him. You see, we get the privilege, men and women, of proclaiming the gospel. It's not good news, it's great news. Now, we do that though, we proclaim this truth in a world that at times is hostile and doesn't receive it. And you know what, that's nothing new, it's something that has been around forever. And I think that's what he is articulating in verses 19 and 20. Now before I get to verses 19 and 20, I need to just tell you guys this. Um, these are some of the most debated verses in the entire New Testament in terms of what they mean. Uh, very godly men who are much smarter than me have come to different conclusions about verses 19 and 20 than what I'm getting ready to tell you my understanding of it is. I tell you that just so you know that I hold my interpretation of 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 with open hands. But I do think that in light of the context of 1 Peter chapter 3 that this makes some sense. See, what, what Peter says in these verses, he says that uh, Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, what does that mean? Think about this for a moment. When did, who, who lived first on this planet, Noah or Jesus? Noah, right? Um, Noah existed on this, on this earth. He lived his life on this earth many years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's a large gap of time between those two lives. So what in the world is it talking about that Jesus preached to those who lived in the day of Noah? Now, there's a number of different interpretations of this, but I'll, I'll share with you my understanding of it. My understanding is this. Jesus, who existed eternally, because he was the Son of God, he didn't come into being at the time that he was born in Bethlehem. That's just when he took on flesh. Jesus existed in eternity. And Jesus existed in eternity with a heart for people. So that when the wrath and the judgment of God was going to come to the earth, the heart of Jesus would be to offer people a chance to be saved. And so in the days of Noah, as God had proclaimed that a flood would come to destroy the earth and would kill everybody who wasn't in this boat, Jesus came, this passage would tell us, and preached through Noah. The spirit of Jesus beseeching those through Noah and, and encouraging people in that era, in that day, in that time, to trust in God's provision of this boat so that they might be saved. And even though in Noah's day, as Jesus beseeched the world through Noah, um, many people rejected that message. In fact, only eight people, Noah and his family, got on the boat and were saved. Now, why would Peter mention that here? I think Peter mentions that here because in, in the church in the first century, they were preaching a message that many were rejecting. 
They were proclaiming the gospel, and many were turning away, and that could have been very discouraging to the church. And I think really what, what Peter is saying here is be encouraged, church, because this kind of rejection doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It's just the way that it's been forever, even all the way back in the days of Noah. But you have the privilege, just as Noah did, of allowing Jesus to beseech the world through you to repent and be saved. In Noah's day, it was by getting on the boat. In the church's day and in our day, it's through people placing their faith and their trust in Christ. Jesus, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, wants to beseech the world. We're ambassadors of God, as if God was entreating people through us to be reconciled to him. See, we have this great opportunity of proclaiming the gospel. And so here's the question. If Jesus has a a heart for those around you, and if Jesus wants to beseech people through you, he wants us to share this message. Who is it in your life that God wants to ask through you that they would follow him? In light of the fact that there's impending judgment coming, that one day Jesus will return and judgment will come to the earth, like Noah, God wants to work through us and encourage people to, to, to seek salvation, not in a, in a boat, but in a person, in Jesus Christ. Who is it that God wants to work through you to share that message of life with? See, we're to proclaim the gospel. We do that through allowing Jesus to beseech others through us, but we also do that through baptism. Verses 21 and 22 make that clear. This is baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He moves into talking about baptism here. Now, this is, again, this is a, a, a debated verse because it says something there that, that seems counter to what the rest of the New Testament teaches to us. It says that baptism... And, it, and it, by that, he's talking about water baptism here because he mentions water right before that, that baptism saves us. Now, as, as the, you know, the rest of the New Testament would not indicate that, that water has any saving power in it, that the only thing that saves us is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean here by saying that baptism saves us? I think that what he's talking about here is that baptism saves our conscience. It allows us to have an integrity uh, in our lives and to follow Christ publicly in this world. Um, Let me give you a a story that maybe will help make this make a little more sense. Um, This last fall, my son, Josh, had, uh, had, had professed faith in Christ and wanted to be baptized. And so as a father, I had this incredible privilege of being able to baptize him. Now, Josh wasn't baptized just because he was my son. He wasn't baptized just because he attended a church. Uh, we don't believe that is what the Scripture teaches. We believe that what the Scripture teaches is that when someone professes faith in Christ, that they then have the opportunity to publicly express that faith through water baptism. And Josh had expressed faith in Christ, therefore he was going to be water baptized. So last, last fall, I had the privilege as a dad of baptizing my son at eight years old. Now, let me uh, just, just say, when, when that happens to your kid, you're really excited. You love this. I mean, as a Christian parent, this is something to celebrate. And so one of the things that we did was my wife and I wanted to give him um, a memento to remember this day by. So we bought him this little statue. You see the statue up here. It's of, of Jesus washing Peter's feet. 
And uh, this is a significant statue. Does wanted him to be a servant and to follow Christ's example. And this is something he could set on his shelf in his room and always remember this by. But now process this through the mind of an eight-year-old. When, when Josh got that, you know what he said? Cool, I got a trophy. It's like, this is my baptism trophy. This is so cool. And so you'd walk around, he would introduce people about it. You'd, hey, look at my trophy. I got a trophy. I got baptized. I got a trophy. Um, that's, just, that's just the way it worked for him. And you know what? That's, that's kind of the way it works in our world a lot of times. When somebody's baptized, it's kind of a trophy moment. We get excited about that. You know, we, we celebrate it. Family comes around, high fives. This isn't all of your experience, but many times this is the experience of those who are baptized. I know uh, I, I was baptized actually as an adult. It's, it's interesting. Meredith McDonald is here today. And uh, Meredith, you're the only person in this room right now who was present the night I was baptized. I, I'm, I'm quite certain. I was actually a pastor at, with, with, with Meredith's dad at a church in Coppell, Texas, um, when, when, I was, when I was baptized. And you thought, well, why were you baptized at that point? Well, I'd grown up in a tradition that uh, I was baptized as an infant, and I came to an understanding later in my life that baptism wasn't just a ceremonial ritual, but it was something that happened after placing your faith in Christ. And so at a youth group meeting where I led the youth group, I was actually baptized, uh, and my, my wife was baptized right after me. Um, so if you think this is just for kids who get a trophy, this is something for everybody. When I, was, when I came uh, to faith in Christ, it was something that was celebrated. My eight-year-old got a trophy. But in the first century, when people were baptized, they didn't get trophies. As a matter of fact, in the first century, when people were baptized, it, it, they became a marked man. They became somebody that was open to public ridicule, ridicule and shame and persecution as Nero was, was pushing forward through the Roman Empire, gathering up Christians and either taking them to the Colosseum, imprisoning them, beating them, or even burning them at the stake. To be baptized in this day was to publicly align yourself with Christ, which didn't always lead to getting a trophy. And yet, it's one of the foundational ways in which we proclaim to the world the truth of the gospel and one of the ways we proclaim to the world that we're with Christ. Maybe give you another example that might help to, to, to drive this home. I've got here a... Uh, jersey for my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I, got, I heard like two whoops. That's great. Uh, and, and I want to tell you that, that when I wear this jersey, it identifies me as a Cardinal fan. You know, and I, I would happily wear this not only in St. Louis under the arches, but I would, I would happily wear this in Texas if I were to go see them play the Rangers in, in, uh, the ball, at the ballpark down there. Um, why is that? Because whether I'm getting a trophy or whether I'm getting ridiculed, whether I get a discount on the hot dog or whether they make me pay double because I'm wearing it, I'm going to do it. Why? Because I'm a Cardinal fan. This shirt doesn't make me a fan, but it shows that I am. Here's what baptism does. Baptism saves your conscience. It, it announces to the world that you're a follower of Christ. And it prevents you from going back on that declaration. You drive a stake in the ground. You say, I'm with Jesus. I'm, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing his shirt. Look, I'm, I'm experiencing baptism. I've trusted in him. And so I, I say to us today, if, if we were to proclaim the gospel, one of the ways we do it is through our lives. One of the ways we do it is, is through proclaiming this message about who Jesus is. But one of the ways that we do it is through baptism and through putting on uh, the jersey of Christ, putting on his righteousness in a public declaration so that those around us can see that we've identified ourselves with him. If you're here today and you've trusted in Christ and you've never been baptized since trusting in Christ, I would just encourage you today to consider 
water baptism. But while would we have baptism several times a year, our next baptism is actually going to be on July the 24th, which is in just a couple of weeks. And normally, we require people to attend a baptism class in order to be baptized. Um, we, we think it's important to understand it. But here's the deal. It's like a bonus deal. Because we talked about baptism today, we're going to waive the class requirement. Um, and if you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, you're following him, but you've not yet put on that jersey publicly to say, I'm with him through baptism. I'm going to invite you to just take out of your, out of your bulletin today this little, this little flyer that says, interested in baptism. You can mark that box with interested talking more. I'm interested in baptizing. And here's what I want you to do. Bring it up and give it to me. Um, after the service today. Or you can drop it off at the welcome desk if it's too hard to get this direction. Um, and, and we would love to follow up with you and love to have you a part of our baptism service on the 24th. Um, see, we get the opportunity of pursuing good and we get the opportunity of proclaiming the gospel.